The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can come here as a gospel community, um, people redeemed by the work of Christ, Lord, that even us could come before you today and have anything to say of value, anything to say of, of eternal significance, but Lord, we have that through Christ. And Lord, as we uh, come and think about the couple of passages we're looking at this morning, would you help grow us in our loving witness to be a gospel community that embodies your love? So Lord, uh, would you use these words, these thoughts um, to help instruct us? Um, but Lord, most of all, would you use your spirit to penetrate our hearts, to help us to see your love and what you are doing in and among our community here. So we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. This past fall in a life training class, uh, we did a class on gospel outreach. And in that class, I made the claim that we have an evangelism problem because we have a love problem. We all know that we should share the gospel, and in our better moments, I think we all genuinely desire to do so, um, but we, we often neglect it, or maybe we do it in an unhelpful manner. We do it poorly. Well, my freshman year of college, I was confronted with this evangelism problem. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up with my parents in the ministry. Uh, and it wasn't until college that I really began a personal relationship with God. And as I got uh, to the University of Utah, um, I got connected with a campus ministry that really uh, had awesome resources for evangelism. And that, that was their thing. So as, as a freshman, uh, I began to uh, fervently, but also fearfully, in a human way, employ their methods. I began to engage in spiritual conversations with unbelievers. And, and this was a really challenging and helpful time because it was the first time that I was articulating faith for myself. But in this, they were just methods that I was using so one of my first victims, as I employed my method, was a roommate that I lived with. Uh, he was also from Boise, Idaho, uh, and so we, we shared, uh, frequently shared car rides to and from Boise here to Salt Lake. And, uh, and, and so as we going on and being, trying to be a smart and, you know, a tactful evangelist, I would wait, you know, on our way to Boise uh, till we get past Ogden and get past Tremington, Tremonton, I don't know what it's called, someone can tell me later, but it's the town where you begin to turn west, <laughs> and you move away from the Wasatch Front, and you move away from all civilization, and you enter the barren wasteland of northern Utah and southern Idaho. It was at this moment that I would strike. <laughs> he had nowhere to go, and we were stuck in the car for four more hours, and I, I would begin my spiritual interrogation ready to shoot down every defense, perfectly answer every question. And I want to ask you guys the question, how do you think that went? After regularly engaging with my friend, 
uh, I began to feel uh, not great about the nature of our conversations. I felt often at times that I was driving a wedge into our friendship. And I was more focused on results, on my methods, on good answers. Um, but, and, it, well, and after the fact, my, my friend, he, he told me that I was a pain in his butt during that stage of our life and our friendship. So as time went on, I began to kind of have a, an epiphany. And I think it was the help of a mentor, if I remember right, that was helping me think through this of how, how to engage my friend. And I, I was seeing that my result focus was not actually getting me anywhere with him. And what I needed to do was actually shift my focus uh, to just being his friend, to loving him well, and to share honestly my life and my faith as I would any other person, any other Christian in the church, though he wasn't one. And so uh, my focus was removed on off of how do I convert him, how do I share the gospel well, and, and more to how do I love him well, how do I be a friend so the, the shift in my approach, it revo- revealed the source of my evangelism problem. I actually had a love problem at the core. And I was evangelizing for the sake of my own gain. And the gain could be a number of things. It could be freedom from guilt. It could be approval from others in my community. It could be a notch in the belt. It could be to be, to be seen as a mature and vibrant Christian. But at the core, I had a love problem. And what I didn't realize until years later was that there was actually another layer underneath the love problem. I had a deeper source problem than just a love problem. I had a God problem. So it's with this I want to consider two passages today, both written by the same author, presenting the same truth, but in two different contexts. The first passage we're going to look at is from the Gospel of John. And it comes, uh, John 13, 34 through 35. And here the, the Apostle John, who's one of the 12 disciples, brother of James, in the inner circle of Jesus' disciples with Peter, James, and John, uh, he previously records how Jesus has just watch, washed the disciples' feet. And then he's revealed how Judas will betray him. And he goes on to tell his disciples that he's going to leave them, and they can't come with him. And upon his leaving, he wants to give them a new commandment, an instruction on who they are to be and what they're to do in his absence, and the nature of the ministry that they are to carry on until he returns. So that's the first passage we're going to look at in Gospel of John and some background there. The second passage I'm going to read here in a sec is 1 John 4, 7 through 12. So here, again, the same author, John, presumably in his old age, He's writing what appears to be a circular letter that's going to be passed around to churches in the communities connected to him. And threatening these churches is bad theology, bad theology that undermines the person of Jesus and his claims to divinity. And with this, the people that are making these claims and attacking the church, many of them are false prophets. There's many deceivers, many antichrists, and they're making claims against the gospel but on top of making claims against the gospel, we presume that their lives are not embodying the love that Jesus modeled and exemplified for them. So John's trying to point how right theology leads to right living and how right living is ultimately filled with love for God and love for people. So we're gonna read both of these passages and then dive in here. 
So the first passage, if you're able to, to find it, is John 13, 34, and 35. And here he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The second passage, 1 John 4, 7 through 12, uh, last section of books right before Revelation, says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The word of the Lord here. So within both of these passages, there's a commandment to love another as God has loved us. And it's the love of a gospel community that has its greatest witness to a watching world. So we're going to look at two primary points today. The first one being the love of a gospel community. And then the second one is going to be the witness of a gospel community. So the first point, the love of a gospel community Here's the main observation. We are to love one another as God loves us. We are to love one another as God loves us. So John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. First John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another. So this is not necessarily a new commandment in and of itself, but it's newly restated and simplified as it sums up the entire law, and we see this elsewhere in Scripture, and it sums up the entire law along the idea of love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And so here, the focus then falls on the second part of that. How do we love one another? And so with, with such a familiar and assumed truth, uh, especially for those that have, of us who have been in the church and in the Christian faith for some time, there, there's a temptation for us to check out here because this is well-traveled, familiar ground, and it's obvious. Of course, we're supposed to be loving people. Even, even the world agrees with that. But I, I want to encourage you to resist that. Stay with me. I think it's essential that we look and re relook again and again beneath this command at the character and nature of God and who he is and who we are created to be as his image bearers. So the first question we want to look at here is, who is this God, and why does God call us to love? So who, who is he? We are called to love as God has loved because God is love, and love comes only from God. So God in his nature is love. This is who he is, and therefore because of that truth, everything that he does proceeds from love. His mercy, his grace, his compassion, they all proceed from love. His faithfulness, his steadfastness, his loyalty, that also comes from love. But also, as we look at his justice, his wrath, his discipline, that also comes from love and who God is in his character. God is not a bipolar being divided in desires. 
He is full of holy, set-apart, one-of-a-kind love. And this is core to who he is uh, in his nature and what he intends for us to be. Um, recently, in, in a life group that we were part of, we've been going through the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. And if you haven't seen this or picked it up, I highly encourage you to grab it. But in one of the chapters, uh, they were ta- talking about the core of who God is and his nature. And they reference a passage in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, in which God describes himself to Moses unprompted. And here's what he says to Moses as he reveals himself. So this is like God saying, this is who I am at my core. He says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So in asking the question, who is God?, God here, he describes what is most central to his character. He describes his loving nature, his loving character. And we see with the long list of, of, of attributes that he describes himself there. And his love welcomes all who will come to him, all who will come in repentance. But also, if someone should resist his love or reject it, the same loving God will justly judge them for their guilt. This is not a divided God. He is the same loving God in both instances. But not only is God loving towards his people, but his triune nature puts this love on display as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit relate to one another. So if you've had a chance to read John chapter 13 through 17, I think it's one of the richest sections in the Bible that uh, portrays the divine reality of God's inner love. And particularly when we come to John 17 and the high priestly prayer, we're invited into what I would say is one of the most intimate prayers in all of Scripture as Jesus relates to his Father in a way that displays it for all to see. So if you have a moment to read the section, please take this afternoon and do so so we can get a picture, an image of what the love of Jesus looks like. When we say that God is love, we need to see that God within his triune nature, he is relation, he's a relational God. And, and, uh, and the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they perfectly love and abide in one another. God is three distinct persons with three distinct roles, but who is one in nature and essence. And what sets the triune God apart from the rest of creation is that he can be love all by himself. As people... As singular beings, we cannot actually be loved by ourselves. In order to love, we are dependent on another party, someone outside of us to engage in loving activity with. But God himself, he is love. And only God can truly be love because in his nature, he is a triune relational God. The Father relates to the Son and the Spirit. The Son relates to the Father and the Spirit. There's love and exchange inside the relationship of God. He is love. So here's the thing. For all of us being created in the image of God, we are all created for love. We're created to experience it, 
to participate in it, both in the giving and receiving of love. And this is where joy is found as we enter into a loving relationship with the triune relational God of the universe. And at the same time, God doesn't need us. But out of love, he created us to enter into relationship with him. And it's better to say that God desires for us to come to him and to taste and see that he is good. That is the purpose to which we are created, to experience the love of God as we are invited into relationship with him. So as relational image bearers, we are invited to participate, not just receive, participate in this relationship with God and, with, and one another. And as a gospel community, we are together called to the same reality, not to just do loving acts with one another because that's what we're supposed to do, but we are to become loving in character. We are to become loving in our nature and to walk in relationship with Jesus through his indwelling spirit. In many ways, we are to reflect the nature and character of God being created in his image. So understanding that God is love and we are created for love, let's turn to the question of, of how does God love and how are we to love? So how, how does God love and how are we to love? So God, ultimately, God is the source of love. So how does he love? He loves first. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. God gives love by giving new life and knowledge of himself. Whoever, has, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. It is God who causes the Christian to be born again, that we might love as he loves. God is the source of all love. He loved first. How else does God love? God is active in his love. He's not a passive being that just loves as he has opportunity, but he actively seeks out to love. And how do you do this? One specific way is he sent his son. God manifested his love by sending his only son into the world. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus became a sacrificial offering to satisfy the wrath of God, to die and to bear the penalty of our sin. God sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins is God actively going out of his way to love his disciples, to love his people, and to display it for all to see. God is active. Someone who is loving will naturally have good works to show them to be loving. And this is true of God in all ways, but it becomes especially clear in the person and work of Jesus as he moves towards people that he desires and provides salvation. God, on top of being the source of love, he is active in love. Next, we see that God is the sustaining giver of love. Verse 9 of 1 John says, God sent his son so that we might live through him. And again in verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us and is perfected in us. So it is only through new life in Jesus and his abiding within us that true love is possible and sustained. God loves us as he is pleased to share his triune love with us, with his creation for all of eternity. And for us to truly live as an image bearer is to enter in and firsthand experience the loving God. But not to just enter in and experience, but also to be a participant in that love. 
to not just be a passive recipient, but to be active as we pursue God and other people. So this points, how are we to love in light of this? So if God has loved us, then what does that look like for us in our life? How, how do we love? How do we pursue this kind of life? Well, the first way we can love, the, the for, or first and foremost, our need, is to know and receive the love of God. We need to be born again. We need to be indwelt by the Spirit one time when we're born again, and we need to be filled by the Spirit. That's ongoing as we continually depend on Him. We need to know and receive and remember that God abides in us. So if we're to love, we need to know and receive the love of God. Secondly, we are to embody a giving love. He says, just as I have loved you, you are also to love others. So initially, we don't love first. But having received this from him, we take on an attitude or a posture that seeks to become a giver of love, that seeks to lead in that. And we don't wait for others to love or act first, but we become initiators who follow the example of Jesus. We don't expect anything in return. We die to self for the good of others. We actively pursue that and become a giver of love because that's who God is and that's how he created us to participate in his love. Thirdly, we must become active in love. So if giving love represents an attitude, it represents a posture, active in love represents the action of it. We're to display good works that come from a heart of love. So love identifies needs and it moves towards them, perhaps with an encouraging word, with the giving of our resources, with the uh, proclamation of the gospel, the sharing of our time, praying, serving somebody, serving alongside another. That's how we make active love. And lastly, we need to remember that we are always dependent on God to love. We love through him as he abides in us. So the moment that we begin to drift from God is the moment that we, uh, we cut ourselves off from his love. It's the moment we cut ourselves off from being filled with a heart of love towards God and others. So we need to be in continual prayer and repentance, knowing that we do not have the ability to love and muster it up on our own, though we try. To move away from God is to move away from the source of love, so we need to be ongoing, dependent on him. So all in all, the theory of this is, is very simple. And again, we've heard this. Love God as, or love as God has loved. But practically speaking, love is really hard. And many of us have a limited, limited or faulty perspective on what love actually is and how we're to do it. And quite frankly, pardon my American here, but we suck at love. <laughs> it doesn't take more than one day of being married of living with your family, going to school, having a roommate, or working alongside idiots to recognize that we have a love problem. So as, I, as I've thought about this, there, there are four approaches to a, a limited, faulty love that come to mind that help illustrate this. And I'm sure there's more, and I'm sure these aren't overly helpful, but maybe they will be to us this morning. 
So one approach to love um, that's faulty is we look at love through the lens of the, of the romantic. So the romantic, they focus on the experience. They focus on the feelings, the passion. There's a priority in the moment. Love is fleeting, so we've got to grab it. You've got to get it while it's there. And this is the common perspective of, of love in our world today. It's, it's been there for all time, but we especially see that today as, as we get caught up and wrap ourselves in the moment. And we see love as just an experience-based thing. We look at it through the lens of the romantic. Another lens that we look at love through is the lens of the loyalist. This person focuses on commitment, on steadfastness, on, and the priority is the long term. It is best summarized by ideas of, I haven't left you, I'm still here. Doesn't that tell you that I love you? Has any any husband told them, you know, that's how you, that's how you know I love you, wife. I'm still here, aren't I? <laughs> now, there's something good in that, right? That, that love wants to be displayed by action and, and steadfast presence, but there's also something missing there in the loyalist approach. We think as long as we keep showing up, we're a loving person. That falls short, too. The third approach would be looking at love through the lens of the idealist. So the idealist has good intentions backed by right practices and disciplines. Uh, but often these disciplines, they come across as empty and rote. Or perhaps they're pursued out of obligation and principle. And the, the idealist fakes it in a way. Fakes it till they make it. But they never make it. They want to appear as loving because they know that that's what they're supposed to do. But with the idealist, that also falls short. There's something missed about the interrelational, personal aspect of that. It's an ideal. It doesn't come from a heart that's been transformed. And the last approach is, is looking at love through the lens of a realist. The realist is the, the truth-oriented, tough love type person. The most loving thing I can do is to shoot you straight and just tell you how it is. And to do otherwise would be dishonest or, or ingenuine. This kind of love often comes across as callous, not caring, not compassionate, not understanding. So in each of these approaches, none of them alone stand by itself and represent the love of God. And, and the point is that all of us fall short in our thinking, in our application of love. And for that reason, we need to look to God to address our love problem. The tendency behind each of these approaches is that we use love for our own purposes. But as image bearers, we are called to an all-inclusive love that is heartfelt, that is loyal, that is disciplined, that is truthful love, like that embodied by our Savior, Jesus. And so why, why is it so hard for us to love in this way? Well, I think we struggle with love um, for a couple reasons. One, we've inherited, we've been born into this world with a corrupted heart. Because of the fall, we were given over to, the, over to sin, and we have pursued our own glory apart from God. So we, we are born with a corrupted heart. But then anyone who becomes a Christian, we, we have a transformed heart, but then we, we, though transformed, we still have a compromised heart. And you see this in that we are torn between loving God and loving self. There's a war that's being fought of the life that we're going to live 
what we're about, what we're pursuing. We have a compromised heart. So having, being, having been created in the image of God, we all long to find love and approval. But instead of, of understanding love in the way that God embodies and displays it, we contort it and we, we seek after it in the way that's best fitting to our own interests, the, best, the way that serves whatever we need in that moment. And love is, is perhaps one of the most powerful realities that shows up in our culture today. We find it all over music, movies, the stories we tell. And we see both the glory of love <laughs> as people are riding the cloud dying high, but we also see the pain and misery of love, of rejection, of disapproval. And in this, worldly love focuses on the self as one seeks to gain or find love for themselves. It's something that they've got to go get, they've got to acquire. But in contrast, biblical Christianity and its emphasis on love is that it focuses on God as the source of love in order that we might give ourselves and love another. So as a Christian, we all love imperfectly. Yet by being born again and abiding in Christ, his love can be perfected in us. And we can be made complete and restored in the image of God after the likeness of Christ. Not to just do loving things, but to be a loving people that, is, that fully expresses itself as we actively love another in word and deed. So for us to be a loving gospel community, it all starts with God. And to assume that we know what love is without looking to God is immediately to undercut any effort we will make as we properly love another. So I started out by saying that we have an evangelism problem because we have a love problem. And we have a love problem because we have a God problem. But now I want to return to the first part of this I mentioned earlier. How does our love problem relate to our evangelism problem? So this leads me to my second point here as we talk about the witness of a gospel community. And the main observation is loving one another makes God visible to all people. Loving one another makes God visible to all people. So both of these passage, passages we looked at, they point out uh, how our love of one another is a witness to the watching world around us. John 13, 35 says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. So all people, Christians and non-Christians, will be able to recognize and see that someone is a Christian by their love for one another. There's something peculiar about a Christian. There's something that smells funny about a Christian. And I think we've all experienced this as you've been out about in your day-to-day -day life and you notice someone and you're like, there's something different about you. I wonder if you're a Christian. What is that that we're seeing? What is that that we're noticing? This is what all people see and notice. Whether they can put words to it is another thing. But John is saying, by this all people will know that you are, or Jesus is ultimately saying, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. But then in 1 John 4, 12, he says this, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. No one has ever seen God. So the invisibility of God is a theme that runs throughout all of Scripture. And it is actually assumed that if we were to see God and truly see God, 
that one would die. They could not handle it. We're faced by this reality of even Uzzah as he reaches out to touch something that is associated with God. And as he touches it, he dies. Why is this the case? Well, the point is that due to the holy nature of God and the sinful nature of man, no one has direct access to God. No one has seen God. But that's until we come to John 1.18, where it also says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Did you catch the implication of this? Who is the only God who is at the Father's side? Who has been made known? God has become visible in the revelation of Jesus. This is one of the most astounding turns of all of Scripture in John 1.18 when we see this distance, this separation from God, but then in, in Christ, in Him coming, He's the revelation of God. He is God Himself. God has been seen by the eye of man. What an incredible truth. So as we come back to 1 John 4, why does he say that no one has ever seen God here? Seems a little bit like a random statement to insert. Well, if we read on, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. If we love, it becomes apparent that God abides in us. Did you catch that? God abides. No one has ever seen God, yet here's the amazing news of the gospel. One that God is seen and made visible in the person of Jesus. But then we take that one step further here, that God is seen through the love of his disciples as he abides in them. God is making himself visible through Christ and through Christ dwelling and residing in the hearts of Christians through the Spirit. This is the revelation of God through people like us here. This is ridiculous. The point is that as we love one another, all people will know that we are his disciples and that God will be made visible in a gospel community that loves one another. So what's the significance of loving one another in a gospel community? I mean, isn't it just enough to be a Christian that loves? And we point, to, you know, we point to the love of God through that in the generic sense. Well, if we look at the context in each of these passages, we see John, in, in John 13, Jesus is speaking directly to his disciples in a closed room after dinner. Who did they understand one another to be in that context, in a closed room? They look around at each other. And it's pretty clear who they are to love. They're to love one another right there, those who are gathered in that moment. That's the seed of the church right there with the disciples. And then we come to the context of 1 John. Again, John is writing a letter that's being circulated to a community of churches. Who's receiving this command to love one another? It's the church. It's the community. It's, it's the gospel community who is regularly gathering that is to love one another. And in doing so, they will make God visible. So this is not to say that a Christian loving another Christian outside the context of a gospel community doesn't display God. That's not my argument at all here. 
But what it is to say is that there's something significant about a group of Christians that are committed to regularly gathering and loving one another. That's the significance here. And I think this is best expressed in the local church. And this is, overall, this is the intent and hope of a church membership, that you have a people committed to gather and love one another till the end as they seek to love God and submit themselves to the gospel. So how is God made visible through Christians? He's made visible through Christians as they love one another in a gospel community. So how, how does a gospel community display love and make God visible? Well, I think first and foremost, a gospel community is representative of the character of God. And the character of God is on display as we are become a newly formed people, as we are born again, as our character is changed. We represent the character of God as who we are changes, and therefore what we do, how we act, is transformed. And in a gospel community, it points, they point to a higher form of love that comes only from God. We take no credit for this ourselves. We say, it's God. I don't know what happened, but he did something. Secondly, a gospel community displays love and makes God visible through our selfless sacrifice. Just as God sacrificed for us, we are to die to self for the sake of another thinking that there's nothing that we can truly gain in this life. And really, at the end, gain is that we get God. We get relationship with him. Gain is that we get a family, a people to belong to. Gain is that we get eternity. And it's not that we gain this. Of course, it's the grace of God that anybody receives this. But we selflessly sacrifice because that's what God has done. So when people see a gospel community sacrificing, that points directly to God. Next, a gospel community loves in grace and truth. So they display love and make God visible by loving in grace and truth. So as a community, we speak the truth in love as Jesus did with everyone that he interacted with. In the end, we all desire to submit ourselves to God and his truth. And we are willing to be proven wrong if we're in error, if we have wrong doctrine. We allow others to speak into our lives, to challenge us, to challenge our unbelief, to call us to repentance. We speak truth and we receive truth all with love. Does anyone know anywhere else in the world that that actually happens? <laughs> that someone humbly asks for input and correction? That somebody, somebody humbly, lovingly gives it for the true benefit of another without agenda? This is what happens in a gospel community, in a transformed gospel community. A gospel community also displays love and makes God visible through, our, through maintaining unity amidst diversity. The church is to be made up of all kinds of people, men, women, young, old, black, brown, white, poor, rich, all backgrounds, all peoples, all cultures. All who are in Christ love one another and they sacrifice their lives for each other. Jesus breaks down all natural and worldly divisions to unite all who come to him in faith. Again, where do we see this in the world? A true unity 
of people of all differences brought together. That is only in the gospel community of Christ. Lastly, a gospel community makes God visible through pursuing authentic love without agenda. Ultimately, we want all people to know God, and we desire and pray for opportunities to speak and remind one another of the gospel and its truth. Yet at the same time, we know that God is in control of all things. And we know that he's going to save whom he will save. So this frees us as a Christian from having to force or make anything a certain way. In saving a person, God never violates someone's will. He always works with it, alongside of it. He changes it. And as Christians, we can speak boldly and confidently about the truth of the gospel and its claim on our lives, but we don't ever need to be threatened by disagreement or other differences. We don't save. Only God does. And we are to love deeply and genuinely, trusting God to bring about change. Do you know what this does for the removal of agenda? This is everything is you can love someone for truly where they are and and what their needs are. And take it or leave it. You're on your own, you know? We we can't control and influence anyone in that way. And this should transform and make God visible in a gospel community. So a believing community is the best foundation for evangelistic witness. Whether we realize it or not, people are watching. (laughs) And I'd say in, in the coming, coming years, people are going to be watching <laughs> as Christians stand out in a re- more remarkable way than maybe we have in a culturally assumed Christianity. But for some reason, I think we've neglected or we've forgotten the powerful witness of being a loving gospel community. So one case study I want to look at here real quick is from Acts 2 Church. If you guys was looked at this, Acts 2, 42 through 47. This is just an awesome, compelling vision of a church. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So many look at this passage and look at it as a blueprint for a successful church, a blueprint for a successful church community. I mean, it's a pretty good and compelling blueprint, right? (laughs) There's a lot of good things in here. But I I think what we miss is the glue that's actually holding this all together and what's assumed in all these different activities. In the end, it's a people that's transformed by their love for God and their love for one another. What else could explain what's happening here? As we think about this, who doesn't want this kind of church? I think in, in many ways, like, I, I'm very thankful for our churches. We've grown, and we've grown under the gospel over the years, but 
Does anyone read this and want this more for your life, for our church community? We should hunger for some kind of church community that points to the transforming power of love as we love God and love one another. So our our love problem, it's ultimately a God problem. But if we ever want to address our evangelism problem, then we've got to deal with who God is and what we're called to be. And we need to see the model that God has given here for us. I think there's a few challenges uh, that are here before us today as a church community, especially as we think about the modern world. But recently, one of the challenges we struggle with is the privatization of faith. There's a a tendency to make faith an individual journey. So we think we we could attack this by putting personal on everything. Uh, We have, uh, as a Christian, I'm supposed to uh, be involved in personal evangelism. I'm supposed to be doing personal disciplines, personal, personal devotions, pursuing personal growth, as if all these things were to happen personally in a vacuum. The Western mindset has so much defaulted to the assumption that the individual is able to derive and find truth. Whereas I think we need some help from the Bible and what God intended that the community is an integral part of our growth, of our evangelistic efforts, of our disciplines. So we need to be aware of this modern challenge to privatize everything and make it just about us. Another challenge is just that of technology. And we can see this displayed in cars, phones, internet, and that these things have actually in some ways disrupted or uprooted us from being fully immersed in a single place at a single time. Now, I'm going to poke at this, and this is probably going to feel a little uncomfortable, but it's true of my life too, so I'm I'm poking at me. (laughs) But have you thought about what the invention of the car has done to the church community? Think about your life for a second. Where do you work? Where do your kids go to school? Where do you go to church? Where do you recreate? Where do your friends live? Where do you like to go on vacation? Okay, I do all these things too. But what has that done but actually undercut and disrupt and segment a community that knows and loves each other well? It's a modern challenge that, again, I I don't think there's an easy answer to this, but it's a modern challenge that we need to be aware of even as we catch up with friends, you, we can stay in touch with people halfway around the world, all the way around the world. And it's actually challenged and disrupted us from being in a place amongst the people loving those well that God has put around us. So we need to be aware of this challenge. And lastly, there's another, just the modern challenge that church has become an experience rather than a community. So in, in all this, given these challenges, there's a need for culture change in the modern church and, and, and for our church here too. There's a need for culture change uh, in, our, in how we do gatherings, how we think about community, how we think, how we pursue one another and how we desire and pursue evangelism, how we invite people to come alongside us as we learn and worship about the God of the universe. 
So culture, in many ways, needs to change in small ways everywhere. And there's not actually a silver bullet or a single program that will revolutionize our evangelistic witness. We're to look at the smallest of opportunities. So how do, we, how do we think about loving one another when we have prayer meetings? Do we see that as an opportunity to be together with the body, coming before God, displaying our love? How do we think about loving one another and our witness through life groups as we engage and do life together as a church? How do we think about the family night that we have coming forward? Is it just a nice social function for those that need it? Or is it actually core to us as a church building a community so that we can love one another well? How do we think about our congregational meetings? Is that just a business meeting for those that are in the know? Or is that actually another opportunity for us to love and care about the ministries of the church and the people that belong to it? We need culture change, a shift in all the things we do. And there's not one thing that we're going to do different that's going to change it. But we need to shift our thinking. Why are we doing this? What's the purpose of it? So I, I have a diagnostic question for each of us to ask. What makes your church your church? Another way to ask it is, why do you come to church? Do you come to church for the preaching? Do you come to church for the worship experience? Do you come because of the missions and outreach and the service opportunities that are there? Do you come because of leadership? All these might be, are, not might be, all these are good things to think about and why you go to a church. But what's missing there, at the end of the day, we go to church, well, a church is made up of gathered Christians who are about God and the gospel. It's a gathered people that makes a church a church. So check yourself. How are you defining church? And good, you know, we should think about preaching, and we should think about worship experience, and we should think about missions and outreach. But that's not what makes us a church. We're people transformed by the gospel. They're to love one another. That's what makes us a church. So how, how do we do this with each other? How do we grow in a loving witness as a gospel community. And just three, three simple applications here that I pulled from Matthew 7. We're to ask, seek, knock. So ask. Let's pray. <laughs> Let's ask God, knowing that, that he will give to us. Let's ask him for heart change. Let's ask him to be filled with the Spirit. And if we're not a Christian, let's ask him to cause us to be born again, to know him, to love him. But also, let's pray and ask God, what are the barriers that are in the way? Some of us have the barrier of comfort. We don't want to give up our leisure, our routine, doing the things that energize us. You know, I give, I serve the rest of the week, you know, during work. My comfort's important. I'm not going to give that up. Do you struggle with that barrier? Do you struggle with the barrier of fear? Fear of being exposed. Fear of being seen as not a mature Christian. Fear of sharing your faith and being rejected. Do you struggle with fear? Do you struggle with busyness? So much going on, there's just no time. Is, that, is your very busy business and you need more margin in your life? And in fact, you need to simplify some things. Is there a barrier of apathy? You just don't care. You know you should, you kind of want to, but in the end you don't care. Is that your barrier that's keeping you from pursuing 
community and, and witness. Or lastly, control. Do you just have no flexibility or openness to God's plan and purpose in your life? Do you do things the way you do them in a certain order? Or is there, is there an openness to what God's doing? So we need to ask God to change our hearts and to make us aware of the challenges and barriers that are in the way. Second, we want to seek. And seek has to do with, with looking. Seek and you will find. So let, let's look around. Let's pay attention to the events, the gatherings, and the life of the church. Not because any, any single event is going to be life-changing, but because every event is about the life of the church. Every event is about an opportunity to love one another. So let's look around and see what opportunities are there in our own community. But also, let's ask the question, who has God put in proximity near to you? Who are other believers that you live nearby that you can connect with? Who are other believers that have shared interests that you can go and do things with? But also, who are non-believers, neighbors, coworkers, friends that God has put around you? Let's seek. Let's look. <laughs> let's ha- ask God to give us eyes to see who's around us. And lastly, knock the action. You know, how, how, what actions can we take? What doors will be opened as we knock? Well, the action is let's commit to regularly attending church gathering functions together. Let's practice the, the age-old uh, idea of hospitality. Are we having people into our homes? Are we inviting? Are we, are we creating events just to be with the church community? But then more broadly speaking, let's think about our neighborhoods. Are there community gathering events that we can do in our neighborhoods or through our hobbies or through different interests that we can get people together? And again, the goal is life together so that we can love one another. And this is good for us and, and for others. So loving others is dependent upon a heart change but it's also a muscle that needs to be developed. And if we struggle uh, to love well in the church, what makes us think we've got a chance to love well outside of the church, outside of these walls? So what I want to encourage us towards is let's, let's begin to strengthen this muscle of loving one another, of committing ourselves to community with one another, knowing that this community, well, one, it'll bring glory to God as we love people as God is loved, but also bring glory to God because that is the greatest foundation and platform for evangelistic witness. God intends our evangelism and our witness to be done through, in and through the community, not just by ourselves. So as we close, the only path to true love is through the gospel of Jesus and becoming a born-again Christian who seeks to love and to give ourselves to others. And we do this as Christ is modeled, and, and this is sacrificial but it's also joy-filled. Our our love for one another makes God visible, and I think it sets the best foundation for an evangelistic witness that brings glory to God. So my hope and prayer is that we can acknowledge our love problem by recognizing that we have a God problem so that we might also indirectly address our evangelism problem. We are weak, but God is strong, so let's start by going to him as a gospel community that we can be transformed more into his image and that he might be glorified and we can find joy in that. So let's pray. Father, we, we come to you a loveless, needy people. But Lord, we see who you are. Lord, what you have intended for our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would give us all a hunger for that 
a desire to better step into love and to pursue loving one another. Lord, I pray that in this church you would give us uh, just a deep and rich community that surrounds a love for God and the gospel. And Lord, I pray in that that you would give opportunities for an outside look, watching world to see our love for one another and to, Lord, be drawn to you, to be drawn to that community because that's what they were created to experience. They were created for love with you and for love with your people, Lord, that are united to you. So Lord, help us to that end. We, we need you to do this, Lord. We cannot do this on our own. So we pray these things in Jesus' Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is... Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.